Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. I'm your host, Farmers Guardian news editor, Olivia Midgley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through your favourite platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast to ensure you stay up to date with new episodes. On the show this week, and following on from our Preparing for Brexit series, which we kicked off last week with the sheep sector, this time we move to the arable sector and look at the practical measures farmers can take to make the transition to life outside the EU a little easier. We're also speaking to the author of the John Nix Pocketbook, whose new book for 2021 looks at the effect of the coronavirus pandemic on all supply chains, market volatility and public spending, and of course, the sudden changes in consumer behaviour. He tells us why the industry is facing its biggest challenges in 50 years. Later, and for all you culture vultures out there, we've got a brilliant and quite unusual story of a farmer building an amphitheatre, yes, an amphitheatre, on his arable farm in Wem, Shropshire, to provide the art sector with a space to perform. And how did he build it? Well, in true farmer style, he parked JCB in the middle of the site and drew a 360-degree circle with the bucket. More on that one later. Now, to continue our mini-series on how different farming sectors are preparing for the end of the Brexit transition period, Jess Fredenberg has been speaking to an arable farmer in Cambridgeshire and a business consultant who's been doing some number crunching. CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this Covid crisis the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more go to www.cla.org.uk Hello everybody. Uh, Apologies for the sounds in the background. I'm recording this from home as we all are these days uh, and there's a few few noises going on. Anyway, we're back with the second instalment of our series on how farming is gearing up for life outside the EU. Last week we looked at the sheep sector and this week we're delving into arable. We're also taking a broader cross-sector look with the help of Graham Redman, Anderson's farm business consultant, who has been gathering loads of farm business data to see how things are and what they might be doing going forwards. We'll be talking to Graham a bit later, but first, let's head to the National Trust's Wimpole Estate in Cambridgeshire to find out what its farm manager has been doing to spread risk and position the farm business for 2021 and beyond. My name is Callum Weir. I'm the farm manager of Wimpole Estate, a National Trust Estate in South Cambridgeshire. Um, We farm 1,500 acres in hand, uh, 500 acres of permanent pasture, grade one listed parkland, uh, which we graze with uh, a variety of rare breed livestock. And then 1,000 acres of organic arable land um, that we farm in hand. So, I mean, just before we started recording, I think you were you were saying to me that um, it does feel very much like a case of risk management at the moment in terms of climate. And obviously, we're looking at coming out. We're going to be coming properly out of the EU at the end of December. How have you been preparing the farming business for life outside the EU in terms of how it can be like more resilient? 
Well, it's, it's certainly a, a culmination of a few things that we're thinking about at the moment. Um, we've got the end of the transition period and the start of um, our direct support being phased out. Um, at the same time, our HLS agreement, which is a significant enterprise, that's how we treat it, uh, is coming to an end in 2021. Um, and then we're just seeing over the past few years, the climate becoming more extreme. And that is really starting to factor into how we manage the farm. So with those three things combined, we're, we're looking at different ways to take the farm forward. How can we become a lower cost enterprise? And finally, that if public support is um, going to be focused on public goods, what public goods can I deliver? And I sort of, on the arable side of the business, put those into three categories of access, public access, biodiversity and carbon sequestration. Yeah, on a farm level, that's what we're doing. We're really focusing on where we can add value to our products and understanding our supply chains, really drilling down into our cost base. When we're farming a 1,000 acres um, of arable land, I don't think that we're going to be the lowest cost producer. So public support is going to be key to our business and we've got to adapt our business to what public support is going to be available. Okay, so have you? How have you gone about doing that? Have you, for example, mapped out what you think could be used for what on the estate? What, what does it kind of look like? So, in terms of carbon sequestration, as one element of public support that I, I think could be part of an Elm scheme or or maybe even a private market, is that we're starting to do um, a lot more work work around. Um, the carbon accounting and, and looking at some of these free tools to understand what's our carbon footprint, what makes a big difference to our carbon footprint, where's our strengths, where's our weaknesses, um, and sort of baselining ourselves around that. Um, with the biodiversity, it's, in, it, it's looking at what we can deliver, um, trying to do some monitoring uh, where we can, and um, making and understanding that links into understanding our cost base looking at where parts of the farm that we currently crop could be better placed to deliver habitats um and therefore when we look at future elm schemes you know really leveraging those um those areas um uh, and then with access it's just understanding you know we're, we're relatively unique because we have a big visitor base but actually you know far, people want access particularly in the light of coronavirus and, and lockdowns people have really valued outdoor space and where is a where are good parts of my farm to, to place people um, so thinking about where i should place people and where i should place wildlife and sometimes bringing those together sometimes creating separate spaces so, yeah, thinking about the estate on a spatial level for the biodiversity and the access and really looking at um, understanding carbon more because I think it's going to be more and more important. Is it quite a big learning curve, would you say? And, and is, it, is it really pushing you to think differently and therefore farm differently? For us, yes. I think other farms will be, you know, uh, ahead of where we are in terms of really understanding um uh, you know their, their businesses that's a really key part of what we've been doing you know we've been doing a lot of external benchmarking using the AHDB farm bench stuff and trying to learn from other farmers with our work in the fabulous farmers project and just um, you know um, really trying to understand uh, our business 
Um, and I think we've got some strengths in our business around we have a really low cost model of organic farming that I think is actually going to be really crucial going forward. Um, I think it's very valuable that our variable costs are less than £200 a hectare and we're still getting the same um, output. So our gross margins look great. Um, so I think that's going to be crucial. Um, so yeah, that's been the learning curve. A big learning curve for us has been looking at our supply chains and you know, supply chains are really complex, actually, more than I gave them credit for. We've been trying to add value to our products by working directly with the people who um, sell them or consume them, um, whether that's internally as the National Trust. And now all our farm's wheat is used to make scones in the National Trust. But that was that took a year to establish that supply chain. Now it's starting to pay dividends because we've added, you know, sort of 15 percent to our farm gate price, which is great. Um, that sounds incredible. So sorry, you said that all your all your wheat is going to now make scones for National Trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that I mean that that took a lot of work, and that's a model that the National Trust uh, that we're sort of looking at. But how can we support tenants? So it's not just my farm. But I didn't grow enough wheat to supply mm. the millions of scones that are um, consumed in National Trust. So it's th- those kind of markets um, are opportunities. We're also working with um, a company called Hodma Dodds um, to market some of our products. Um, because these things, you know, they really do require a bit of upfront investment. Um, but if you can sort of add 15% to your farm gate price um, and take some of the risk out of variable commodity markets, um, I think, you know, once those supply chains are established, uh, they really do pay dividends. Mm, so this is what you, you mentioned earlier, you're adding value to your products. So um, is there anything else that, um, that you're adding value to? I, th- I think being organic helps we're a premium product true but also takes the swings out of the market they're relatively static um or at least not as variable as um as commodity markets um and you know i I looked somewhere that since 2016 london wheat futures have varied by you know nearly 100 percent. that's a huge amount of business risk so that's why I think the organic is one stage to add value to our products. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then working with our, taking that a step further by working directly with suppliers helps. And what we want to do is sell our story. We want to sell the carbon story. We want to sell the biodiversity story. And um, we can do that through our products by working with niche suppliers. And let's just talk about the organic side of things for a second. Have you been able to prepare for any changes or are you very much just waiting waiting to hear at the moment? It's, it's, um, it's certainly a risk to the organic sector because of the um, equivalency around the certification. So uh, I've been trying to really keep abreast on that to understand those risks. I mean, we face the similar risks that uh, many conventional farmers face in terms of export opportunities. The one, the one challenge with leaving the EU is that the, um, the, the, you know, the EU have set some quite ambitious targets for organic farming and, um, and whether those are reflected in the UK government, um, uh, you know, but we, we've, got a, we've got a sensible business um, in organic farming. That's a low-cost model that's focused around soil health um, and if you take those principles, there's many other forms of agriculture which are doing something similar. So how are you feeling about how you've managed to position the business to be able to cope with what might be coming? I feel 
how do I feel? I feel if, if there was a good ELM scheme that really delivered public money for public goods, I would feel confident because I feel that we've put the estate in a position where it can deliver those public goods. Um, knowing full well that actually we're farming heavy clay soils and um, we are not massive and therefore actually trying to deliver public goods is, is, you know, and then really farm the best areas is probably the most sensible course for my business, you know, as opposed to say if I was farming 10,000 acres of grade one or two land, you know, then, then actually farming... Uh, commodities and food is probably the best thing for my business. So, uh, you know, with a good ELM scheme, we are, I think, well-placed. With a poor ELM scheme, we're marginal because, as I said, we're not going to be the lowest-cost food producer. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that's that's the risk. I mean, that's why a big part of what I'm doing as a farm manager, but also on behalf of the organisation that I work for, the National Trust, is really uh, feeding into the ELMS process, the consultations. And I'd urge all farmers to do that because it's really in their interest to deliver a good ELMS scheme. What do you think would be the most useful thing right now from your perspective um, that the government could make a decision on or, you know, release some detail about? The most useful thing the government could do is more and more consultation with farmers and try to start to form some of that detail um, and start to really put some ideas around the proposals that, you know, they don't want to commit to detail because they want people to feed in. But at the same time, people are struggling to, to feed into the proposals because there's not a lot of detail. So even if DEFRA just put around some just rough ideas saying, what do you think of these? And then it gives people the opportunity to comment on those. I think that's probably helpful. And and really, I suppose one thing is understanding there's, there's a risk between as BPS starts to tail off and um, ELMS doesn't kick in yet. There's a transition gap that, you know, we are concerned about and, you know, not wanting the farm to go backwards in that gap. It's an uncertain time and... Um, at least one thing is that I know we're, we're confident that in our organic system, we're not tying up huge amounts of capital, short-term capital in what we grow, which I think short-term capital is going to be very important going forward to manage those um, that, that, that gap in BPS redu- reducing um, before ELM starts. That was Callum Weir at the Wimpole Estate. So how are arable growers in general faring as we head into 2021? And what are farmers across the sectors doing to adapt to the changes ahead? Well, let's talk to Graham Redman. Graham is a partner and research economist at the Anderson Centre, which among other things advises farm businesses. He's been heading up the John Nix Pocketbook for Farm Management, which has just released its latest version stuffed full of UK farm data. So he's a great person to talk to about the state of play at the moment. So Graham, it's it's been a really quite an interesting year for UK farming hasn't it we've had flooding drought covid uh, dry spell again and now we're in a wet patch we've got the brexit transition period coming down the tracks we've not got any clarity yet on what the relationship with the EU is going to look like or what the agri-environment scheme will look like either so looking at all of this together and the implication on cash flows particularly variable farmers with the the bad weather what kind of position are UK farmers in at the moment as they head into 2021? 
Right. Okay. That's, uh, that's a good question, Jez. It's essentially we're in a situation where up until now, a lot of arable farmers uh, have seen the damage that's been caused by the extreme weather uh, financially might not yet have hit the bank account because last year was quite a good year for arable farming, good yields, moderate prices. Um, and over this course of this year, then they've been gradually selling that. And they might even have had, in some cases, slightly lower costs because spring cropping tends to be a bit cheaper than winter cropping, of course. Um, but now it's in the barn. Now is the time that they will start selling that. And so the cash flow implications might come out in the next six or eight months, you know, as a as we get through to next spring, the costs of growing a winter crop start to rack up fairly quickly. Um, BPS, basic payment scheme, all being well will come through as normal. But if there's less to sell and costs quite high, and potentially we could see a lot of farmers growing a fairly large area of winter cereals this year, which will push the cost back up. So there could be a cash flow squeeze. And then, of course, with trade... If we find at the end of this year a, um, that the UK comes out with some kind of a trade agreement with the rest of the European Union, then it might be sort of roughly business as usual with the rest of Europe. Uh, but if not, and at the moment it's not looking like there will be uh, much of a trade agreement, then we could find that some prices on farm could shift fairly substantially upwards for some commodities and downwards for other commodities depending on uh, the current arrangement and, and how it's going to change uh, post 1st of January 2021. And what does the, the data from the John Nix pocketbook that you've been gathering, what does it tell us about the current shape of farming businesses in the UK as they head into that? Um, at, at the moment, uh, a reasonable situation, there have been some sort of tough uh, years for an awful lot of farmers, uh, which will be affecting the, the cash flow uh, going forward from now. Last year, though, you know the yields were reasonable, and so for a lot of farmers, they had a sort of a, a fair to middling, uh, moderate to good year, should we say? So I think those farmers that are sort of being quite uh, thoughtful with regards to the future, there's so much that's unknown about what's going to happen from this year onwards for all the different reasons, the COVID, the uh, Brexit, and so on and so forth. There's been some consolidation taking place and the, the smart farmers are really making sure that they've got their house in order uh, in a really robust and resilient way to deal with whatever policy changes, whatever comes from Brexit and so on and so forth, not just yet next year, but over the next six, seven years, perhaps. Obviously, um since really the, the result of the EU ref referendum, which was four years ago now, there's been a, a lot of talk in agricultural press, hasn't there? I mean, we've spoken a lot about um, what farmers can do to prepare their businesses, make them more resilient, etc., etc. There's been a huge amount of advice and urging going on, I think, in farming for farmers to do that. Do, looking at the, at the data of where farming businesses across all sectors were before the EU referendum and where they are now, is it possible to to see whether businesses have been adapting in a kind of positive way? Like, do the, does the data show that yet, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, good question. And it's difficult to answer, Jez, because um, in terms of actual physical actions, 
it's quite difficult because there is still no absolute clarity on which enterprises are going to benefit from Brexit, which ones are going to be disadvantaged from Brexit. We still don't know the answers to that. So a farmer can't yet make a decision. Do I expand my poultry unit or do I get rid of beef? Do I sell my lambs and do I go into pigs? Those kind of fundamental strategic questions we can't answer as a result of Brexit. Okay, we can, uh, individual farmers can decide I am a sheep farmer, therefore I'm going to continue, or I am this, that or the other. Um, I think there's, you know, the smarter farmers, those who have been more forward-looking, have been sort of preparing for, should we say, preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Um, but one thing that we can learn from the coronavirus um, lockdown and the various different um, issues that we've had to deal with around that is just how thoroughly resilient our industry already is actually because so many other supply chains have you know, collapsed the purchasing of different goods um, fell to almost zero of course consumers need to continue eating we need to provide 3,000 calories for everybody every day whether they're in the middle of lockdown or not whether they're very wealthy or very poor so that is an advantage to agriculture but it's also a big big responsibility as well which if you look around at how agriculture has responded and the entire supply chain has responded flicking from um, food service and other catering outlets to pretty much entirely through retail nobody in the UK has gone hungry as a response to failure of that supply chain so I think that's a a big sort of um, testimonial, if you like, to the performance of agriculture and the entire food chain over the last six months. I mean, I think people definitely have gone hungry, but that's nothing to do with farmers producing food or not. That's that's a whole other issue in its own right to do with Correct. systemic that's changes. All sorts uh, of different problems. reasons, that's right. Yes, absolutely. But I, I think... Um, you know, you said like a lot of farmers have been very forward thinking. Um, mm. Do you think that you've seen you know, with maybe your more your Anderson's hat on um, for mm. one second? And have you seen more farmers taking opportunities to perhaps add value more to their products, diversify things like that as a result of, of this? Yes, um, that's happening. It's been happening for quite a few years, actually. And it's are likely to accelerate now, particularly if agriculture does become a bit more difficult over the forthcoming few years. Farmers looking mm. around their businesses going, I have all these resources, I have the sort of physical capital, if you like, but I also have the social capital of the society around me. I've been here for a long time. I know lots of people. I've got a balance sheet. I've got all these resources, which I could employ to produce food or I could just deploy them in different ways to produce other goods or offerings for society. Um, I was on a farm just this morning, in actual fact, um, and uh, he's converted uh, a disused barn into holiday lets. He's doing an exceptionally good job there. There are cricket nets in place, all sorts of other things happening. Um, and actually, so a farm is no longer necessarily just simply a place where food is produced but more a rural business where you know there's all sorts of activities taking place be that sort of renewable energy 
or you know things for the local community to purchase or enjoy or people visiting from afar it's actually quite exciting i think isn't it that that change that's that's going on that's there. right big um, opportunities for those who are prepared to look in a slightly different direction yeah absolutely and i, I guess with that in mind what um just as a kind of last question mm-hmm. What are you telling farmers in terms of what they can do right now? You know, what's the single most important thing that they can be doing to um, put their businesses in the best possible position? Uh, Understand what they fundamentally want to do. Make sure that all the people within that business, the directors, the family, the generations, whoever is involved in that business are also thinking the same as well. So communicating amongst themselves, making sure they all have the same vision as to what they want to do with their farm in five years, ten years, and a generation's time. Because it's quite often uh, you'll find the different different people within a business think everybody is thinking the same as themselves, but in actual fact they might not actually be. So keeping that communication going, and then financially looking for a little bit of consolidation, uh, looking to be ready to... Um, sort of doesn't necessarily mean paying off debt or anything because debt is quite cheap at the moment but building up those enterprises which are strong and profitable uh, and then being flexible and ready to change direction if they decide to do so once there's more information about Brexit um, in the months to come. You're still ploughing on and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. Thanks to Jez for that report. And finally, when Shropshire farmer Tim Ashton wanted to diversify his farm income and also do his bit for the struggling performing arts sector, Building an amphitheatre seemed the obvious choice. Our reporter, Hannah Binns, wanted to know how it all played out. For any theatre fans listening, the next story may pique your interest, especially as it isn't your typical farm diversification. With the crisis facing live performance, theatre and culture due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it appears farming could offer a solution and provide another public good. I caught up with Tim Ashton, a no-till arable farmer in Wem, North Shropshire, who has built an on-farm amphitheatre in five weeks to provide a space for the arts industry to perform. The lockdowns had huge impacts on lots of different sectors, but I think one of the worst affected must be live performance and the arts because they require people to gather closely um, indoors. And um, I remember during the lockdown, after finishing the spring drilling campaign, going for a long walk through my local town, and seeing these stickers over a whole load of um, planned events that local groups had organised, you know, dance events and kids play and all sorts of things with cancelled stuck all over them. And we've been doing some work on the farm here for the last five years to build a long barrow, which is an interesting project in itself. And an extension of that was to sort of work on a little bit of a ritual landscape around it with like a causeway and some standing stones which would be familiar to farmers in the sort of Wiltshire area and a few other bits of the UK where that stuff survived from the Stone Age. Um, and so we had the Masons sort of working here on that project and some of them were sort of between jobs and wondering what to do next. And I, I sort of that circumstance on our farm uh, met with the um, uncomfortable feeling that 
things were being closed down and people weren't being able to access culture um you know and uh i thought actually if we if we slightly adjust the plans we'll be able to build a space outdoors which is safe for people to gather and put on live performance and gosh jcb 360 sat here not doing very much um so we turned the key on it um and uh literally described a um a circle for the stage using the the bucket the the, the, dip, the digger bucket um and then we mounted up earth banks with uh two two sort of flat stages so you've got sort of three tiers of seating by the time you've got the edge of the stage and then on on each uh earth bank um and we worked out that about with the covid restrictions about 80 people can gather down in that space uh safely to watch live performance um i've been asked to say a little bit about what it cost it's probably somewhere in the order of two thousand pounds to do that but i I, th I wanted to just say that this is not something that can be done you, you needn't cost a great deal of money uh if you've got a, a spare dutch barn or um some bales um other farms can lean in and help local bits of performance happen and it's really greatly appreciated by the community who are missing it and I think probably more importantly than that the guys who are able to get on their feet and sell some tickets who haven't been able to work for five six months now and are looking at maybe another 12 months without being able to work it's a responsibility I think that that some farmers might want to take on to support those guys our industries um fortunate often to be well thought of by the public and supported in difficult times and i think it's a, a good opportunity for us to potentially um pay that forward a little bit um in terms of what's so th that whole process took about five weeks from having the idea to making it happen and then sort of timetabling some things to go into that performance it's been a bit of a whirlwind because i suppose we're in the, the front line of making this happen so we've ended up with the national youth theater bringing at least two productions uh, one of a specially written piece uh, actually about farming uh, and then animal farm they're going to bring next year there's bits of shakespeare coming up so next weekend which is the, the end of august there will be two gentlemen of verona which is shakespeare following weekend midsummer night's dream then some contemporary plays, Neville's Island, and uh, a rewriting of Alice in Wonderland uh, called Alice in Lockdown. And then conversations going on at the moment about bringing promenade opera and some stuff for children, horrible histories are coming. So um, that is an overview really of, of the project to bring live performance onto farms. And I was just grateful of the opportunity really to suggest that this might be something that other farmers look to do on their farm so it's not just North Shropshire that's um, getting this sort of pattern of activity to happen and uh, the best way I found for getting it to work is to use this hashtag we've been using on farm culture which allows performers to use Twitter to find a farmer who's receptive to letting this happen and then it cuts down a lot of the sort of aggro about getting things organized and networking so uh, final thing to say is I know that uh, National Youth Theatre are looking at touring their their piece on agriculture, uh, sorry, their piece uh, on, um, they're looking at touring Animal Farm. Um, so uh, if there are farmers who are looking at that, if they get in touch with the NYT, uh, then they might be able to bring something of reasonably high prestige mm -hmm. to their farm. It would be wonderful if other farmers felt able, without a great deal of effort being required of them, frankly, um, to lean in and do a bit of 
support for culture on their farms. So if they are able to use a hashtag on Twitter, which is on farm culture, then they will show themselves as being open to being approached for this um, type of activity on their farm. And it will make it efficient for people who, who are looking around uh, rather frantically at the moment to get things staged. Um, so that's how basically it's been working here. And I do know that the National Youth Theatre are looking to tour um, Animal Farm, which they're putting on in the spring and take that to various farms and only put that production on on farms. Um, so if you if you're keen and you reach out to them, there's a, a decent prospect of getting that to come to your farm. Um, and um, I would just say that the community around here has been incredibly appreciative of this being done. and. It is a good thing for for farming to be you know, visibly helping out a very difficult time for another sector. Thanks to Hannah and to Tim. What a fantastic idea. We wish you every success with your new venture. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platforms to keep notified of new episodes of Over the Farm Gate and to catch up on previous episodes. From us at FG and the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.